I am a really big fan of experiential gift giving. There's something about giving a gift that allows someone to make a memory with me or without me that makes a gift so much better in my opinion. So if you're still trying to find the perfect gift for the women in your life this Mother's Day, might I suggest giving them a day out at Time Out for Women. Right now you can get the best price of the season, which expires May 23rd by visiting tofw.com. Again, that's tofw.com. The episode you're about to hear was filmed in front of a small studio audience. It may seem unusual to hear a Hall of Fame quarterback, one of the greatest to ever play the game of football, talk at length about what he calls the law of love. But Steve Young believes this law of love is undefeated because of the power he has witnessed in it in his own life. In his new book, The Law of Love, he writes, I didn't come across the law of love because of a pleasant walk in the park. I dug deep into the law of love out of desperation, trying to find a way for during some dark times. Focusing on the law of love helped me zero in on what really matters, the perpetual, unchanging principles of love at the core of Jesus's gospel. You may also find yourself currently in dark times. As Steve writes, you may feel like Moses at the edge of the Red Sea. You've got water in front of you, the Egyptians behind you in hot pursuit, and you're stuck. But what if the law of love could open a path for you? It is our hope that as you listen to this episode, you can start to see that path before you. Steve Young is a two-time NFL MVP, a Super Bowl MVP, and a first ballot Hall of Famer. A key member of ESPN's weekly coverage, Young holds undergraduate and law degrees from Brigham Young University. He is president and co-founder of HGGC, a private equity firm, and founder of the Forever Young Foundation, a global charity for children, which he co-chairs with his wife, Barb. This is All In, an LDS Living podcast where we ask the question, what does it really mean to be all in the gospel of Jesus Christ? I'm Morgan Pearson, and I am honored to have had the recent opportunity to sit down with Steve Young. Steve, just to start us off and set the stage before we get any into any of the principles that you discuss in the book, I wondered if you would explain to our audience here tonight, what is the law of love and how do you feel that it is rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ? It's an easy answer. Loving as God loves, seeking another's healing, expecting nothing in return is my definition of the law of love. But your question brings about, you know, so much. I've been thinking and drawing on its principles for so long that it's funny to be introducing them and how it feels. And I want to articulate in a way that people can take it in, in a really productive way. And so if you think about uh, loving as God loves, that's a heck of a statement. But I work off of, of, of Scripture you know, you think about Moses one thirty nine, and you think about my work and my glory is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. That's essentially God's mission statement. And in that mission statement, if you kind of think about it in how does, is, is there a transaction in there? Does, what does God get in, this, in his mission statement? Usually if there's a mission, there's, a, there's something to be achieved. There's something to receive. And, and, and if you think about the scripture, God only receives anything of any glory through our glory and through our eternal life and immortality. And so if, if God loves without transaction, without seeking anything, it's to seek as, I want to love as God loves, seeking others' healing and expecting nothing in return are the key elements of it. Because expecting nothing in return really is difficult because so much of our lives are transactional. Well, I, I'll tell you right off the bat, I think a lot of us think of you as Steve Young, the quarterback. And the thing that blew my mind as I read this book is just how much thought you've put into it and, and how this is clearly something that you've studied and thought about for a very long time. A lot of people may not know that you've been a Sunday school teacher for how long? Well, I was a, a gospel doctrine teacher for 15 years. The bishop was kind enough to let me keep going. They finally fired me the other, a couple of years ago. 
but it really is it was the it was the place where I got to practice some of the concepts over or doctrines and principles over a period of time. It actually, Morgan, was a reflection of my life at the time too, as I tried to figure out I like how do I describe it? I would describe it as you're you're put in a situation sometimes in life where you know we have to clean we have to clean out we, you have to clean everything out and we're going to put everything in the parking lot or out out in the yard everything out in the yard okay but we're just going to start from scratch and we're not going to bring anything back in that's not essential and I was in that place in my life because of the relationships in my family because of kids because of church because of all the things that were going on in my life i had to go through this process of what comes back in what is it that i can take to everyone in my life and it is prosperous and productive and resonant and perpetual it won't something that won't rot something that won't we live in a and we live in a world where we're all i don't know we're all aging, I'll call it, not rotting, but we're all like, it's a world that we're, we're, you know, it's just the entropic world we live in. And I was looking for the things that would last because that's my spiritual journey has been, I, I want heaven. I want Zion. I want perpetuity. I, I seek it. It's what Christ has promised and I want it. And what are those things that as you put everything out in the yard that can, are essential back in? And that was a reflection of, what I could take back in and, and boldly hold. I could, it, it was, it was all powerful and all it encompassed all of my sense of testimony and all my sense of place. It was a personal journey. It was a, and I, look, when I write, it was hard for me to put my name on it. When I wrote it, I wanted it just to be the law of love and then just hand it out. I really did. But I just, you know, it's, ah, uh, you can't really do that in nowadays, but I, it's, it's my rendition of it. And I was just speaking a minute ago with someone in the audience and, and we got talking about how I guarantee if I could just magically take your experiences from you, like some Harry Potter thing, you know, and I could just grab them all I know that my book would pale in the relationships and the experiences that you've had that you might not have known reflect the pure love of Christ. And in that pure love is the effort that this book starts hopefully to open the doors for people to engage in, to chew on. Well, Steve, I know that you did not want tonight to be about you. And I think it's for the reason that you just described. But if it's okay, I would like to talk about a few experiences that you share in the book. You repeatedly say that this law, the law of love, is undefeated. You talk about how it's undefeated on the football field. It's undefeated in the workplace. So to start us off, you give a few examples of early on in your career as a quarterback. And I wondered if you'd be willing to share a couple of those just to give people an idea of what yeah, we're talking okay, about. So let's, I mean, I, I, I'm sure people are like, okay, Steve, what? <laughs> um, I think simple examples that I noticed. One was Ronnie Lott. When I joined the 49ers in 1987, he was the king. Joe Montana was the king king, but Ronnie was the king of the, of the locker room. He ran the place and he was a Hall of Fame defensive player. And when I joined the team, it was very awkward because Joe Montana was the king and I had come to kind of challenge the king. And it was just, we did a commercial uh, on TV recently. It was basically about the awkwardness of our relationship. It never, <laughs> awkwardness never really ended. But there was a time when I was just getting started there when I was trying to challenge and trying to make a place for myself. But yet everybody kind of supported, of course, the guy that was there and doing well. And here's this goofball trying to create a space for himself. And at one point during practice, somebody, I did something wrong and someone said something like, what an idiot, you know, what a fool or, you know, what a joke or something like that. And Ronnie heard it and kind of stopped things and gathered around. And he said, look, he told a story about how, you know, one of the fundamental principles of his life was that when I play on a team, 
I have my teammates back. And it's not conditional. He didn't describe it that way, but that's how he was talking about it. It's not, it's just, I have your back. And so as he talked to the guys who had kind of catcalled me, he said, look, on this team, and he had me come out in front of everybody, and I'm like, oh, no, Ronnie, don't, oh, this is a disaster. <laughs> and he kind of put his arm around me and said, look, I have his back, and I want you guys to have his back. Because no matter what the situation and the, and, the, and the challenges we have internally, we have to have each other's back. And what happened in that moment, two things happened. One, my teammates saw me differently. I was kind of, not wasn't the enemy, but I was kind of a interloper. And suddenly I was part of the family. I was, I was, I was like invited in. He invited me in. And the other thing is that he healed my sense of disbelonging. And he did it with nothing that he wanted. He saw me, right? He saw me. He sensed who I was. And by his reaction and by what his was internal to him, he was he did what was natural to him, but what he didn't realize is what he did for me. I don't think he intended to heal me, but he did. And I always remembered it. I never well, I saw him this week, hugged him and thanked him again after almost 25, 30 years. And it never goes away. When somebody sees you without seeking anything but your healing, your goodness, your well-being. It's, you're seen in a, in, a, in a most unique, glorious way. And I think that what, what about the law of love is it doesn't matter where you are. You can be on the football field. You can be in the ultimate business setting. You can be at home. You, it's relationships. And another one that comes to mind, Morgan, is... I had a, a guy on the team, Charles Haley, who just tortured me, especially early this time period. And he'd make, you know, he just, uh, football, the locker room's a tough place to live. I mean, it's not for the faint of heart. Uh, and I avoided him because he was, he was torture. Like I would like, he would say things about, I just didn't, like, I was hard. Like I didn't, I didn't want to be there because it would, something would go wrong. Something would go. So, and so I just avoided him and I would avoid him like everywhere. If he was in the training room, I was in the equipment room. If he was in the locker room, I was out on the field. Like, I did not want to cross paths with him. And it was one time we were in a, a bus getting uh, going up to Seattle to play the Seahawks, and we got off the plane to get on the buses, and I was late. I got distracted on the plane talking to the coach or something. I was the last guy. I jumped on the bus, and I get, going up and down the bus, there's one seat next to Charles, right? It was, like, right there. And I'm like, I just thought myself, you know, I wanted to get off the bus. Like, just get me off the bus. <laughs> But there it was. And he said, no, he said, no, sit here. You're, it's fine. And I said, oh, thanks. And then we had a, we started a conversation, which we'd never had. We'd never had a conversation. And then I asked him about his wife. I know that was struggling a little bit with a, with the illness. And then I, uh, he asked me if I was married. I'm like, no, I'm not married. And like things about you that you'd like, we played together for a few years. Like you'd, you think you'd know, right. But it's just like all this stuff. I had no idea about him. He had no about me. And by the seven or eight, 10 minute ride to the, to the Radisson hotel, wherever we were going to stay for the night before the game, we connected, but shared common experience. Our relationship changed. And because we had this ability, and this is a small thing, but because we had a moment to see each other, you know, he was never as tough on me ever again. It wasn't easy. I never like, I didn't look forward to running into him, but we had, a, and now our relationship now, some many years later is phenomenal. The friendships and the rigor of what our relationship and where it came from, it, it actually, you always talk about Christ alchemizing all, everything. He can alchemize anything to our profit, to our eternal profit. And, it, and there's a relationship that was alchemized, and now we look back at the rigor of it, and because it found its space to heal, it's a it's turned it into a profitable relationship. The bad thing that happened or that was going on actually was I, I always say you know I always say the saying death by a thousand cuts. 
The law of love is life by a thousand cuts. Because no matter what the experience is, it can be made for our kind of eternal profit and for each other. And But it doesn't mean that it, it doesn't steal from any accountability. It doesn't steal from any other of the laws of God. It doesn't, but it is supreme and it is undefeated. Well, and I love these examples and hopefully uh, everyone listening is getting a taste for the fact that this is very doable. I feel like these are little things that make a really big difference. And my favorite, I hope you don't mind me bringing this up. My favorite example in the book, you mentioned Joe Montana was when he invited you over for Thanksgiving dinner and his daughter (laughs) said, is this the guy we hate? (laughs) It's funny. Kids are funny, right? Kids are, kids are funny. No, no, no. He's not somebody else. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I and I love that because I think none of us are going to be perfect at this all the time. But clearly, in inviting you over, Joe was trying to extend that love. So I think the way you have to think about it is, how do I leave each day? I mean, what, what it's like, I, I think of two ships. And, and as the ship leaves the port, I, I leave, my ship moves towards healing. My ship towards towards love, and it doesn't mean that every relationship's perfect. There's terrible, abusive relationships. There's relationships that are toxic, and you need to stay away from. But which direction do I head in? Where do where does my ship or my my boat? Which direction am I headed? And I think that's the way that I want to describe starting to enact the law of love in your life. Is every relationship that you have. The most intimate relationship you have in your family, all the way out to someone you run into on the street, we have a relationship right now. That relationship should feel healing. The law of love invites, it doesn't require, it doesn't demand because it's not transactional. It invites. And that invitation is never ending. And we think about Christ, the Christus statue that's just across the street. When Christ is sitting with, I mean, standing with his palms out as an internal invitation, that's the invitation that is in every relationship. It doesn't mean it's, again, it can be a terrible relationship. It can be toxic. It can be, it doesn't mean that you go jumping into them and try, oh, Steve Young said, I need to get in the middle of this relationship. No, it means what direction do I tend towards and where I can injure, uh, uh, engage, I engage with that spirit, with that sense of I'm here to bring. What, think about what is healing to people. You see someone, you smile, you tip your cap, you give them a thumbs up. And if you did that every day, the same person you walk by, let's say you would just, you go to work every day, you see the same person every day. And every day you do the same thing. Hey, how you doing? You do that every day. The person will remember you, even though they don't know you. They'll say, I, I have a relationship, and it feels comfortable. It feels profitable. And I think that's the idea is that the hardest relationships to be selfless in many times are the most intimate because they're the most challenging. But that's where the law of love is truly undefeated. Steve, you also talk about, you have a chapter where you talk about this in the workplace and, and in your job within private equity I feel like finance, the world of finance is not a place that people often think of the law of love being acted out. But you've talked about how the response to this, as you've talked with your colleagues, has been really interesting. Talk to me a little bit about that. What is wonderful about engaging in the conversation is that it can go to the depths of any kind of theological conversation we want to have tonight. We can, we can do it. it. It's fine. The law of love takes it all in. It's fine. Or it can be in a, another setting that's not necessarily a religious setting or theological setting. It's just, but where you have two humans, that's, that's what you, that's, that's the place. All you need. That's the place, right? So in business, what is happening most of the time is transactional. Private equity is 
the ultimate transactional place. I think of my brother who's an ER doc down in, in Lehigh, and he's, he's a wonderful human, but he's very transactional about medicine. You come in, my arm's hanging off my body, I'm yours for about the next 10 hours, right? Like I am going to, we're going to work this out, but then I'm going to pass you off, right? So it's very, and that private equity is very transactional, but that does not preclude the ability for you to be headed every day in this place and find the profitability or the the space for what I call the spirit of abundance. Because the law of love carries with it charity from Moroni 7. It carries with it love. It carries with it abundance. It carries with anything, anything that reflects what would be in perpetuity. What is life-giving, life-affirming, is perpetual. And in that way, that's what it gathers. And so for me in business, across the table is not somebody to extract as much value as I can, or to get everything that I, you know, could get. It's a very, there's so much zero sum game or, or, you know, there's a pie that's so big, and I just got to get my part. And, and, and when I get my part, you don't get it. You don't get that. And so it becomes very zero sum, right? It's like we don't. And what happens when you enact that kind of a relationship? Inevitably, there's a winner and a loser. And in business and in sports, there's all kinds of winners and losers. And so the loser never feels like satisfaction. It's like I lost and now I'm going to come back and try to win again. And so you have this constant competition and conflict that's never resolved. Whereas across the table can be an abundant partner that you're negotiating with as you seek that common ground. Now people, there's a thousand books written about common ground and, and get to yes or whatever, but they're all should be, they're all kind of uh, tentacles to this fundamental principle. And so I seek that common ground, that spirit of abundance. And the way I'll describe it to you is in a football analogy. It's actually a practical example. My coach at the time that I joined the 49ers 30 years ago was Bill Walsh. I I could go on and on, but I want to quickly tell you about my first day as a 49er. Team meeting, first day of the 1987 season, we came together as a team in a setting like this. He was up front, and I noticed a guy over on the side with a big, huge camcord thing, the 1987, the thing with the wires, was <laughs> filming him. And then when he walked out, was filming him, and he took him out on the field and filmed him, and then he took him in the locker room and everywhere, and I thought, what are they, that must be a documentary. You know, he's already won two Super Bowls. He's the most famous coach in the world. I'm sure it's about that. But what he was doing was that he was creating a repository a toolkit, a physical toolkit of taped of all of his speeches, everything that was happening in practice, all of his installations, everything that was playbooks, videos, audios, all put in one place, literally a crate that he could hand to his assistant coaches, most of them African-American who wanted to, he wanted to get them a hand up to get a head coaching job. And so at the peak of his career, at the height of his proprietary knowledge, and I could go into great detail about that, he was collecting all of that to hand it out. And there's a, 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 a crazy story where he said to one of his assistant coaches he left, I'll see you in the championship game. Because he knew, knew as he took this head coaching job that they were going to come back and compete with us. Because this, this is three generations ahead of everything that's happening in football, and I'm giving it to you. And I just think that this, I don't mean that everyone needs to give away their proprietary secrets. I just tell you that as an example, that's what Bill did. And because he did that, the abundance, the legacy, when I go around Monday night football and I watch teams warm up and I meet their coaches, almost every one of them talks about being from that toolkit. And so if you think the NFL is very popular today, a lot of that popularity and a lot of the spirit of abundance is coming from a single act of selflessly giving what was most valuable to him. And again, I don't expect you to give what's most valuable to you, but there's a spirit to it. And in that spirit, I can find abundance if I seek it, if I really seek it in every relationship, even in a business sense. And people 
sense it. We as a, as a, as a firm talk a lot about these values, but they're, they, they're hard to take in. You have to, but if you, if you really work at it, love is in business. Love is in football. Love is in every place. And with this mindset, you can, you can start to engage with it in a really profitable way. And to me, as an LDS, active LDS faithful guy, it becomes the why. It's, it's kind of my, it's my why right now is what I would describe it. Well, I love that example that you gave. And one reason that I love it is because, you know, if we view things as transactional, then it's like, well, what am I receiving? I think your coach, like the most beautiful legacy you can leave behind are the many people who are carrying on whatever you've given them. And um, I think that's a great example of that. In the book, you talk about how we do not worship a transactional God. And you say this, working out my salvation sounds like a transactional individual thing. But remember that Elder Uchtdorf said salvation cannot be bought with the currency of obedience. I can't actually work it out myself, finding my salvation. I find it in losing myself. And that's exactly what Christ said. Lose yourself and you'll find yourself. So working out your salvation is not a singular act. Steve, many people here may have read your autobiography, so they're familiar with the fact that you struggled with some anxiety. And you give this example in this book of how you were feeling really anxious beginning your professional football career. And you had an idea for how you could make it all better in your mind that would have been pretty transactional. Tell me a little bit about how that went down. Yeah, I well, first of all, if you go back to the, the quote by President Uchtdorf or Elder Uchtdorf, I think uh, it's important to, re- I, how would I start this? I, and I get to the Elder Maxwell story in just a second, but if you think about what I describe as Boy Scout theology, Boy Scout theology is essentially, mer- mer- I call merit badge theology. In other words, <laughs> the most wonderful things in our life we can go get a merit badge for. And so we do it, whether it's faith or, or what any of the great things that we're asked to do, but we're, 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 we're seeking a merit badge. We're seeking that, that, that idea that where there's something to get, I'm, I'm somewhere to go. I'm on my way. I have somewhere to get, and I'm going to, and I get there by having these different badges that, that I need to have checking off the box. Checking, and I, and by doing so, I, get closer to my ultimate goal, the Eagle Scout, right? I, and, I, and I wear my sash because I want everyone to know <laughs> I am legit, right? And so we want this theology that's like, and so in, in the doing, we lose track of the being. And in that way, we got to be super careful that we're not thinking about our relationship with heaven in a transactional way. Going back to Elder Maxwell, I had, you know, this is, every relationship is fraught with the uniqueness of the relationship. I had genetic anxiety that I didn't understand at the time. I learned when I was 33. I didn't know that it was severe. I didn't, all I knew is I didn't sleep over at other kids' houses. And when I played football, I got sick to my stomach. So, you know, that was how I, that's how I thought about it. And so I signed this contract that was overinflated for public, for public consumption. And now I was the richest athlete in the world. And I remember getting a, a, a note from someone in Japan saying, Steve, you're super famous now. And, and I remember thinking this sick feeling like I can't earn this money. I don't want this money. In fact, my anxiety tells me to just get rid of it. Like I, like I can go play the game and I can do the job, but I can't do it for money because then I have this expectation and this money that they're paying me is so much money. I can't even fathom it. And I can't take the pressure. I can't take what it makes me feel like. This is all happening in days, not weeks. I don't have a long time to think about it. Just it's happening right in front of me. I don't know what to do. And so on the way home from the the owner of the team who has just signed me, gave me his private jet to fly me back to Salt Lake to collect my clothes from my sacred home in Provo that was now my second home from my home in Connecticut. So I had two homes and now I had to go to some unknown 
dangerous place in Los Angeles. Like, and I had to collect my stuff. I had a day to do it. And what I couldn't do, I could collect my clothes. I could leave my home for another new, dangerous, scary home, but I couldn't do it with this, this money because I, I, I can't do it. So I, I, on the flight home, I got this crazy idea of finding someone in the church to go give it to. I'll just give it to them. And I, I had two checks in my hand that were like millions of dollars. I'm like, just give it to them. And like that would, then I'm good. I'm free. Because what I wanted, if, I wanted to feel not sick to my stomach. I wanted to, I felt anxiety my whole life. I didn't know what, what it was called, but I didn't want to, that anxiety was like white hot. That was like, I don't, I, no. <laughs> so I told the, the pilot, call down and find somebody. I need to talk to someone who's in charge of the church. I need to see to some. He came back and said, we found a man named Elder Neil Maxwell. And uh, here's his address. And go see him. He's ready to see you when you land. So I landed, got my car, and drove right to his house. And he met me at the front door. And I, a lot of, as we get going here, I'm going to start crying a lot. But I remember thinking, you know, I didn't even have him really say hello. I said, Elder Maxwell, I have this situation and I need to, you know, and this terrible thing. And I didn't. And he said, see, peace. Come in. Let's just sit down for a minute. Let's chat. And let me, let me, I, I've, I've watched you for many years. Love that you've come up. So in the next hour or so, started to get more calm down. And I told him, look, in a very calm voice, I said, it would really mean the world to me if you could take these checks. Because I go on Good Morning America tomorrow morning to talk about this situation and I really can't do it with with this. And it would really be wonderful if you just take them. And he said, Steve, I'd love to take them, but I cannot take them. Because this is your journey. And I think God has a plan for you to go through this and see what you can learn on the other side. And we know that the church will be a prophet. We don't need to worry about whether I take this money or not. This money is not about me or the church. This money is about you. And I was like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. This is, this is happening. And, you know, God, not going too deep into it, but he gave me a blessing. And then I, I ended up going home and, and, and finding a way through it to live through it. And people are always like, well, sure, Steve, you found out how to spend a lot of money. Like that's not hard. But you have to understand that when you're in the moment of the of the anxiety, you just want peace. You want healing. And sometimes healing is not easy. And I think that's an example of a healing that took place over a long period of time that was not easy. And I needed somebody to push me th- through it. You know what I mean? Lovingly Get me going through it because I wanted to go around it. And if you spend your life going around it, it's, by definition, you never go through it. <laughs> and and I look back at that as a wonderful example of love for me, seeing me and knowing what would be most profitable for my soul at the time was to go through it. That's not what I wanted to hear. It didn't didn't make it easier. It didn't like all of a sudden go, oh, great. But it was it gave me the confidence that I could go through it. So shortly thereafter, you happened to be on a plane with Stephen R. Covey, another name that people will recognize, and he shared some counsel with you. What was that counsel and how would you say that it changed you? You know, he's an interesting man. I, I, I'd known of him, but I never really had a chance to chat with him much. I ran, I got on a plane with him at one of the lowest parts of my life. And I had dug myself into a hole of depression, anxiety, anger, frustration. Uh, the challenge was just too much at the time. And I described it to him. And you sit down with me, he goes, he says, how are you doing? And I just, we were over Elko by the time I got done with telling him how... how <laughs> How how was how was going? And he said, "Well, that's wow, Steve. Wow. Um, first thing I want to tell you because I told him how horrible it was to play football because there's too many people. Like I wish I played golf or tennis because then if I lost, I lost, and if I won, I win. I don't have to drag these other ten people with me all the time. And how hard it is, and how un- you know, it's just 
too challenging, it's too much. And he had a great story about how science had proven that seven is the most human beings that can work efficiently together. And that you add an eighth person into a group, it devolves. And then ninth, it geometrically devolves. And by the time you get to 11, it's just chaos. And I, I remember thinking how perfect that that is, because that's exactly what it reflects, how I feel. He says, but what I want you to know, Steve, is I spent my whole life traveling around, trying to elevate the stories of the magic of accomplishing things by definition with too many people. The magic's in the fact that there are too many people. The magic happens when, by definition, science says more than seven, you can actually come to some fruitful place. And that's why football, in my mind, is actually a beautiful thing. And here I was hating what he saw as beautiful because he saw the ability to come together. And he talked about, I suspect, Steve, that the teams that are better than others are teams that are more integrated. And at the time, integration to me was, you know, African-American guys and white guys and my Samoan brothers and like, how do we integrate? But in many ways, he was describing what was actually a reflection of what my experience was on my team is that because of how we were coached and what we were thought, how we were taught, we, we sought shared common experiences, experiences amongst each other. And the coach talked about, we want to get to a place where we have a shared love for each other. And if we do that, we'll be more prosperous. We'll be that place in the game, you know, in Lambeau Field, when it's in Green Bay, when it's freezing rain and windy and your 80,000 people are screaming against you. You'll get in the huddle and you'll be able to see each other and actually share an element of love for each other. And that's what Stephen Covey was talking about is football is beautiful because it gives you the opportunity with too many people to find and, and see each other. He described other situations where people can be teammates for years. You know their name because it's on the back of their jersey, but you actually don't know anything about them. And that in the interaction and in the effort to find this elements of love for each other is the seeing of each other. And if you can get 50 people to do that and cross-fertilize, you, he said that the power in that is magical. And that's why love is, like, it's miraculous. Love heals in miraculous ways because it's given a fruitful place to, to be. And that's why the book is really about focusing on the fact that it needs to be an element of every relationship that we have. I love that story so much. And I love how you kind of illustrate in the book the way that from then on, it became exciting to you to go and figure out how to make that work on the football field. The law of love is rooted in the way that we care for those around us. And you share a couple of really great quotes. I wanted to quote one of them from a Catholic monk named Thomas Merton. He said, our job is to love others without stopping to inquire whether or not they are worthy. That is not our business. And in fact, it is nobody's business. What we are asked to do is to love. And this love itself will render both ourselves and our neighbors worthy. I love that idea of us making ourselves and our neighbors worthy through our love. This is something that I think is a lot easier said than done. But how have you seen this change the relationships in your own life as we're not maybe so focused on our own worthiness, but on love? I was talking to some uh, missionaries recently uh, by Zoom. That's one thing about great about terrible things about COVID, but there's some silver linings. One is Zoom. <laughs> And they were in England, and we were talking about these concepts and these principles. And I said, just, you know, we were talking about the law of love and how Moroni 7 is one of the stakes in the ground in how I want to describe why this is so vital. The idea of, of seeing and, and recognizing people comes from this principle that Moroni, as, as you know, his, his, think about where he was at the time and what he was seeing, what he was feeling, 
And, and the last things that he wants to write down is this concept of charity or this ability to have transfigured eyesight. You can, as a, on earth, in this entropic place, have transfigured eyesight. And what is that really saying? It's that I can see others, not just who they are right now. I can see them kind of through time and space. Like I can see them as eternal beings. And see, fun, so to me, the fundamental principle that, that carries me forward is that loving Heavenly Parents, we were with them before. Each person takes a body in a faithful act. And so in that way, I see every human being as fellow journeyers in faith. And if you can see every human being that way, and then how would God see them in their eternal potential, their eternal form? It wouldn't be at all defined by, as we see each other right here, we would see each other in a much more complete way. And in that way, Moroni is describing this pure love of Christ, this transfigured eyesight that you can have. And as I taught it through in gospel doctrine and through the years, people would raise their hand and say, oh, Brother Young, I it happened. And it was in a situation, it was a very acrimonious conversation in a very intimate relationship. And suddenly, out of nowhere, I saw this person in the most beautiful, amazing light. I don't know how to describe it. It's as if it was like a thunderstruck of of what I the potential the like the literal human potential is in, inside this person that I'm so mad at and so frustrated with and, and in some ways hate and suddenly the love just overwhelmed me and in that love I felt what you're describing that's what Moroni must have been talking about and that is something that I've sought ever since it was a flash and it came and it left and I've spent my life seeking to feel that way about others, to see them in that way. And it was like, suddenly I had transfigured eyesight. And I think that is heaven. Heaven to see people in a perpetual state, that's heaven. And heaven can be here. We've been promised that heaven can be in our homes. Heaven can be in our relationships. And this is how you can get into a state of perpetuity. And I've always said transactional relationships, by definition, will rot. They have to. Think of Christ at the time with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were the ultimate law abiders. They were perfect in the law. But they were abusive in the spirit. They had lost in transaction, lost the very nature of what they were trying to achieve. And Christ's message, once you understand the law of love and then you go back and read the New Testament, it just, it, honestly, there's times I'm like, oh my. And this is Christ's mission. And to, and to create an environment where we can, through our spiritual eyes, see others in, in an eternal perspective. It's, it's an amazing thing. I love that you mentioned Moroni 7. My husband and I just finished reading the Book of Mormon last night. And earlier in the week when we were reading Moroni 7 um, and the chapters right before it, we were talking about how it's so interesting that Moroni almost wraps up the Book of Mormon prior to those chapters. And then it's like, oh, I've still got more time. These are the things that I need to make sure you get. And one of those things is that message in Moroni 7 about charity along with ordinances of the gospel. And so I think that that's, that tells us how important charity is. Uh, you quote in the book, our stake president, Steve and I are in the same stake now, who said, and I'm just going to paraphrase this, but he talked about how if we're not careful, a desire for measurable success, the kind that we often receive in the workplace um, in the form of reviews or whatever, um, will lead us to spend too little time on relationships in which we may not see as many immediate results. You are a busy guy. And so I'm wondering for somebody who has had success in the workplace, how do you make sure that your focus is on 
relationships? And are there people that you feel have taught you how to do that really well? Yeah, it, it, we, we've talked about transaction a lot. We've talked about how to find a place where uh, we can start to engage. Um, I, I think about, I've, I've said many times in my life, you know, there's a lot of achievement and there have been a lot of achievements. There's been a lot of failures and I've learned a lot from all of them. Um, they're valuable. There is nothing there. Uh, my relationship with all of my sacrifices throughout my life, both spiritual and emotional for kind of heaven's sake are all valuable. And every one of them is sacred to me. But I think that what will be most valuable is the relationships and how much healing I've brought. No trophy, no no money. It can't, like, it won't, def- I know it won't define me in heaven. What will define me is the healing and those relationships that I have, and the healing that I've brought into the world. And as I think about the law of love, it really is, that's my legacy. People, I say, well, what? what? I remember I was talking to, you know, humanitarian XP is a, it's kind of, they used to be H-E-F-Y, but it's about taking kids out in this, in this doing service. And, and we're talking to the trip leaders and I was describing these kinds of things. And, the, you know, one of them it became very evident that they were engaged in, you know, the, the journey and, and, and how to create relationships that, you know, and the legacy. Of, and one of them said, well, Steve, you've achieved all these things. And so you have it all, uh, like the world sees you and says, oh, you're, you're good, you're set. I haven't, I haven't achieved anything. And I'm worried that my life is not going to be valuable. And it's a real concern I have. Like I'm super worried that my life won't be valuable. And my response is, our lives are equally valuable already. And what we do with them in, in, in healing other human beings will define our value. And so I already know that my legacy to others might be something else, but to me is really about where have I found that healing spirit and where, and have I been able to bring it? If you think about Christ's mission, we know that he's come to save and to heal because we're in an eternal round to grow and, and, and learn. And so in the growing and learning, we're going to have woundedness. And in the woundedness, we're going to need healing. And Christ can heal, but most effectively heal when we become little S saviors on Mount Zion, when we take the opportunity to create a space for healing in every relationship and actually extend the atonement into the relationship. And in doing so, there's magic, Steve Covey magic. There's, there's miracles. And people say, I've never seen a miracle. Well, then you haven't seen love. Because love is a miracle. And when love is given selflessly, it is exalted. And it's exalted in a way that never stops giving. And the very things that I struggled with, the challenges in my life that I wanted to find answers for, that I was struggling, praying for and trying to figure out, I kept hearing this voice that said, live your religion. Live your religion. I'm like, I'm living my religion. Like, what are you doing? What? And one day we were talking in class about holding the priesthood and how do you hold it with four principles, four, 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 four uh, ways of being, long-suffering, gentle persuasion, meekness, and love unfeigned. And I said to my class, that's living your religion. Live those qualities. And immediately I said, oh, that's my answer. And so all the problems that I was facing, some of them were existential in my mind. I started to lay on top of all the problems, the elements of my personality to be more long-suffering, more gentle persuasion, more meek, and more loving, selflessly loving. And in the doing of those things on the issues, on the most of the issues you have are relationships, in the doing, all of a sudden I got flooded back with the answers 
to all the challenges. And it was as if there was this place where I had to lose, Christ says, lose yourself, to lose yourself into the issues and be these qualities, these power. We talk about powerful words. You know, uh, I always chuckled in football. Power in football would not be long-suffering, gentle persuasion, love unfeigned, and meekness. Like, it's like in the huddle, that's not going to get much done, right? But deep down in getting human beings to come along with you, absolutely, 100%. And so for me, I've found most spiritual engagement and ennobling thoughts in the doing and the being of these four qualities that I think describe and the law of love. That is, then if you think about the priesthood, is and should be and only be a worldwide healing force. And it should be all selfless. It's all service. Every element. So if you can't hold it without these four qualities, and if you do exude those qualities, all of a sudden in exuding the qualities, you get the answers that you didn't really know that you you were looking for, but you now you by selflessly laying it out there for someone else, you actually get is the greatest irony in life. And but that's the power of the being, I guess, not the doing, because the doing is transactional, the being is non-transactional. I'm so glad you touched on that. That was one of my favorite parts of the book was where you talked about that scripture. I loved reading about your love and admiration for your wife, Barb. And in the book, you talk about how marriage is not a transaction either. You talk about how a lot of different relationships, and we may have to skip some in the interest of time, but you quote Elder Richard G. Scott, who said, your marriage is a covenant without transaction. It will ask all of you all the time if you ever try to make a deal it will inevitably falter. Uh, were you ever tempted to make deals in your marriage? And how would you say that you found that your marriage is better when expectation of anything <laughs> in return is, is removed? The reason why I say that transactional relationships have to rot is because they're self-interested. At their root, even for good, I'm seeking whatever the elevated thing that you're seeking is still self-interested at its core. And so it has to, over time, it, it has to, it will rot because what happens as you, as you become more, like, I, I want to, like, let's, for example, I want to be as good as I can be. In fact, I want to be perfect. And so in the, in the seeking the perfection, in the seeking of the, the, the things that I needed to be perfect, what happens without much time going by, suddenly I'm looking at all the imperfect people around me. And I see them and say, oh, well, I've suddenly, in a weird way, elevated myself. And now, all of a sudden, I'm othering people around me. And I didn't, how did that happen? Well, it's because in the, in, even in the most righteous desires of, of, of transaction, it's, it's rooted selfless. It has to rot. It will over time. It just doesn't have a choice. And so if your marriage is built off a transactional relationship, it sooner or later it's going to be trouble. And it goes with, well, right now we're 50-50. It's perfect. I saw her give 40. I think I'm going to give 45. How long is it before people are giving zero? But if I'm giving 100 every day, no matter what, Hundred. I don't even ask. In fact, I don't even think about it as a hundred. I don't even think about it in a transactional way. I'm just in. And whatever I need to do to bring healing, to bring goodness, to bring service, whatever I needed to say, I'm sorry. I'm be vulnerable enough to recognize my ills and my mistakes and recognize that I'm in. All in. You told me this is what this is called. I'm in. And I'm in regardless what happens is you don't have to ask yourself, well, you know what? She didn't, I wish that she, I, I doesn't feel like you don't transactional relationship, ask transactional questions and you get transactional answers, non-transaction, truly selfless thoughts and behaviors. They don't come up. It's a different conversation. Your boat's headed in a completely different direction. And in that direction, I think is the greatest 
most ennobling, wondrous, spiritual experiences allowed by mortals. And I'm all in for that. And so, despite all of the unique and different challenges that we all face in intimate relationships, like, I've seen the law of love in my marriage, and I've seen the four power words of long-suffering, and I've seen, as I, and now look, I am not, this book is not about my, I get it all figured out. I'm, I'm with you. All I'm doing in the book is like, come along, like, Good luck to all of us, but we're in this together. And I mean, theologically, emotionally, spiritually, in my theology, we are in it together. And we can, in a weird way, ironically heal each other in a miraculous way. And I've seen that in my marriage. And I, I love my marriage right now. And I love... I love the hard things. I remember I said, life by a thousand cuts. Like, I really think that what's true about this is Christ really can, in the spirit of this selfless love, turn, and I'm not saying I had a thousand cuts in my marriage, because I haven't, but I'm just saying it can take whatever the challenges are, and alchemize them to beauty and wonder and, and grace and forgiveness and cool stuff. Speaking of Barb, though, you two have devoted a great deal of time to the LGBTQ community. You share in the book several of your experiences with this community that I personally thought were really beautiful. What do you wish that Latter-day Saints better understood about this group of our brothers and sisters? Huh. In the book, I tell a quick story. Maybe I'll, if you haven't, because you haven't read it, I'll just quickly tell you. I spoke at Affirmation, which is the LDS LGBTQ organization. And my wife, who has been reflexively, you talk about selflessly, reflexively loving for LGBTQ um, brothers and sisters, it is reflexive and it's wonderful. And I watched it and I was a partner with it. And she, she gave me the opportunity to to meet so many wonderfully wonderful gay people and 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 get to know them and 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 so when we spoke there I spoke and she spoke and after she spoke everyone rushed up to give her a hug you know cuz she's it was so wonderful and I got the chance to kind of be on the outside looking in usually it's like so steve you know oh. I was and then one by one these 20 mid 20 early 20s men would walk up to me young men would walk to me and ask essentially the same question do you mind if I had a picture with you? I don't know much about football, but my relationship with my dad is not great. And I think if he saw me with a picture with you, that it really might make a difference that he might see me in a, in a better way. And so I hold him close and hug him and took the picture, of course. And, but I, I remember thinking to myself, these are are these are warriors in our midst. I played in really a, a really tough game where warriorship was exalted. I saw warriors on the field. I mean, in every aspect of what you're thinking about a warrior being, I saw, and I honored it. But I want to tell you that I have seen Morgan. I've seen warriorship in other parts of my life, and I saw it there. And it changed me. And I've seen the goodness, and I want to bring it forward and have people take in the full measure of all the people in our midst. It's not just LGBTQ, but all the people in our midst that we are missing the full measure of. And with a spirit of seeing each other, sitting down and spending the time and getting, like just the simple interaction with Charles Haley on the bus, can we change our lives and and the world? Like, yes. I know it's, I don't want to be like, oh, you know, Steve Young says we can do, but we can do simple things. And we can see the warriorship in the lives of others, this transfigured eyesight that I describe. And it's been a lot of the 
propulsion, the energy to get this on paper for me has come from those sacred experiences. Before we wrap up, I love something that you say at the end of the book. You mentioned that there are a number of things that can kind of rock us, that can destabilize our relationships with the church, whether it's polygamy, racism, difficult aspects of church history, sexism, queer phobia, etc. But then you write something that I think epitomizes what it means to be all in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I wanted to make sure that I read this. You said, I can stare at it, chew on it, and own it. I can go back to the fundamental message of the restoration, which is this. Every single person on earth has a divine heritage from loving heavenly parents who knew us before. They have a plan for our growth on this earth, and Christ came to heal us and save us. All those pieces were present in various religions in different ways before Joseph Smith's time. But the Lord brought them all together through Joseph in the restoration. Every aspect of Christ's message should propel us outward to bring healing and to extend the atoning power of Christ to everyone. Every soul is rooted in faith from their very first step into mortality, and we are called to provide more space for that trajectory of faith. It's the call for each of us to rise up to Christ's message of inclusion and love. So having read that, Steve, what does it mean to you to be all in the gospel of Jesus Christ? I told Barb, uh, my wife, I said, you know, so much of this is your fault, right? Because I, I, Please don't misstate it. To me, it's a joke, right? Like so much of rubbing up against her every day and seeing how she sees the world has allowed me to see the world in a, in a, in a way that a, that gives the the place that I don't have to have people be perfect. In fact, I can engage them in their imperfection, and in that engagement, I can have the grace to give the space for the learning and growing that I'm going through and that every human being is going through because my theology says so. And so my energy for the my relationship with the church comes from those fundamentals that I thought, that I believe Joseph was, that brought forward and they're, they're, they're beautiful. And all the other things that came along that are, are the, are the human foibles. I can give everyone the grace to have those foibles as they are looking through the same glass that I'm looking through the intersection of agency and opposition. And we're all looking through the same glass and to give people that space so that if somebody made a critical mistake, it doesn't take away from the glory that their lives are about. To me, it's true for every human being. So I'm sorry. Um, And so I can, and I truly believe that Christ can take all of the foibles and all the shortcomings and create a space for us to engage in something glorious. And so to me, when you say all in in the gospel, like I've never been more energized and more excited for the potential of these fundamentals to get to move forward and then to leave behind the things that can be left behind. It's okay. There, the people, there, people are not. It's okay. Like the law of love says, I see you and I see you in the flaws, and I love you. Not because I want you to be or go or do anything because I don't have that in my mind. I just, I want you to see the full measure of who you can be. And I can make that space for prophets. I can make that space for saints. I can make that space for my atheist friends. I can make the space and let us journey together. And what can I do for you individually to help you in your healing? That's my religion. And that's why I go to church. And that's why I take the sacrament. That's why I do the things I do because it's energizing to that mission. I'm super excited about it. recently. I was on to other missionaries and I was talking, they were home from COVID and they were all disappointed because they were home and they're all stuck in their homes during the COVID period, during that, that spring and fall. 
and they were, and we had a Zoom, of course, and I, I was t- teaching these principles, and, and they said, well, we, I feel like I'm worthless sitting here at home. I can't do anything. I'm supposed to be out teaching the gospel, and I'm sitting at home. And I said, no, you do not understand. Do you have, a, do you have any other, is there anyone at home? Is there another human being in your home? Yes, you are a missionary right now in the healing effort to extend the atonement into every place that you can. And if you do that, that is that is what you're doing. Whether you're in Santiago, Chile or in Provo, like be about the work. And the fact is you have a tag on your chest. It never goes away. I've lost my mind. I'm yelling. I don't mean to yell. <laughs> Oh my gosh. I like the enthusiasm. I just caught myself. I apologize for that. I've um it never goes away. And I think those missionaries took that as relief that I'm not sitting here failing. I'm missing opportunities to do the very work that I'm that my why did I do it? Why did I worth why the sacrifice if I can't bring healing to the people in my own home? And if that's not enough, then we're not, we don't understand the law of love, I guess. I apologize. I got crazy for a minute. I, I don't. I loved it. I thought it was awesome. Um, I think that this message that you've shared with us tonight, Steve, is a message, like you just said, those missionaries felt relieved. I think all of us can feel a sense of relief and a sense of peace that this is what it's all about. And it feels like something that we can do and something that we want to do and feel energized by. So thank you so much for the work that you've put into this book and the thought and the prayer. I appreciate you being with me tonight. Hmm. My pleasure. Um, Nice to be on All In. We are so grateful to Steve Young for joining us on this week's episode. You can find Steve's new book, The Law of Love, in Deseret Bookstores now. A big thanks to Derek Campbell for his work on this episode, and thank you so much for listening. We'll look forward to being with you again next week.